Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We are in our ongoing exploration of the book of Exodus. And as you find your way to Exodus 20, I want to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping with us in the Family Life Center and those who are tuning in online. I want to welcome you into this study as well today. Don't forget where we've been. The first 15 chapters of this book are all about about liberation, all about being set free from whatever Egypt enslaves you. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 describe the wilderness experience of after we are set free, there is a period, whenever we are freed from a thing, there is a period in which we just kind of wander and, and we wonder, do I really want this freedom? Because now in my, my newly found freedom, it means that there is a, a new way of life and, and I'm not so sure I, I want to welcome that new way of life with this new God that, that has set me free. It may have been better for me just to remain enslaved because back in those days, at least I, I knew what each day would look like. <laughs> and then chapters 19 through 23 make up what we describe as a covenant-making section in the book of Exodus where God establishes a covenant where God becomes uh, the uh, in relationship uh, to the people the people become the people of God and right in the middle of this section chapters 19 through 23 we find chapter 20 where the 10 commandments are found and we've been saying a few things about the 10 commandments we've said some things about the anatomy of the 10 commandments how the first Three commandments are all about the love of God. How do we love God? And, and the last six commandments are about how we love our neighbors and love, love people. And how that fourth commandment, right between all of them, links them together in the fourth commandment, the call to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, the call to worship is the place in which in worship our minds and our hearts are, are provoked to, con- to consider how we might love God and how we might love people. It all happens in worship, see. And here we are ready to open up the next because we're taking these commandments one at a time. And as I do, it reminds me of the story of the man who lost his his coat in the middle of the winter. And on a Sunday morning, he thought, you know, it's cold outside. I think... I think I need a coat, but I can't find mine, so I know if I go down to the church in the lobby, they have those hooks, and, and all the coats are hung up in the lobby. I'll just grab one of those. So he goes down into the lobby uh, on a church on a Sunday morning, and he grabs a coat. As he's grabbing the coat, the ushers come out. The deacons, uh, the deacons start deking. <laughs> the, the deacons deke and say, oh, welcome. Come on in. We've got a seat right for you. And unbeknownst to him, he's drawn into worship. He sits right there on the front pew. And lo and behold, the whole sermon was about all of the Ten Commandments. 
And at the end, he meets the pastor on the way out in the foyer, and he says, Pastor, thank you. You changed everything for me today. I came to church today because I was going to steal this coat, but now I no longer want to steal the coat. And he said, why? Was it the, sixth, the, the eighth commandment, do, do not steal? He said, no, it was the seventh, do not commit adultery, because when you preached it, I remembered where I left my coat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, oh. All right, all right. I want you to laugh a little bit today. I want you to laugh a little bit today because the rest of the sermon, I, I, I have no, no funny stories. I have no more jokes, uh, no more cute anecdotes to tell you. I just, I want you to laugh because I need you to relax. I do. Because when, when, when you look into the worship guide and when I read the text, and here it is, chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. I know as your pastor that the moment you saw what the topic was for today, all across this campus, some hearts began to beat a little faster. They did. And, and for a variety of reasons, too. And it may be that, that your pulse began to elevate a little bit because you see this topic about adultery and, and you have been on a very long journey of healing. And it's still kind of tender for you. It, it might be that, that your pulse has raced a little bit and you're a little nervous about where we're going to go in this sermon. Maybe because the wound is still fresh and you have endured a kind of pain and a sense of abandonment and isolation and rejection that you, you just don't know for sure you can survive. And Lord, if I have to sit and listen for 30 minutes about the thing I'm going through, I don't know if I can make it. Or it might be that your heart began to beat a little faster today and your spouse's heart did not because she doesn't know or he doesn't know that you have begun to venture into some boundary, blurred territory that you never thought you would venture into, and you're not sure how to walk this thing back. And furthermore, maybe you're not even sure that if you knew how to walk it back, you're not even sure if you would really want to anymore. Hmm. So I want to make sure if any of you are in that place today as your pastor, I don't want to bury my lead I want to bring the bottom line of this sermon right up on top. I want to give you a spoiler alert because you need to hear me say that there is hope and healing and reconciliation and forgiveness and newness of being. Even if you can't see it or feel it right this very moment, there is a way. And that way is in and through the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to sit for a while and, and in worship, just let God love you for a few moments. Do not be anxious, but listen and let God love you for a few moments, understanding that sometimes love comes through conviction and sometimes love comes through comfort. 
And there may be a word of comfort and conviction that results in newness of life for somebody today. So today, for a few moments, I simply want us to talk about vows spoken, vows broken, and marital resurrection. Vows spoken, vows broken, and marital resurrection. Let's pray together. God, be among us and do among us what only you can do. Convict us, comfort us, transform us. I pray that for just a few moments you would hold our hearts and hold our minds and hold maybe what is only fragmented pieces of relationships that have been broken. I pray that you would hold us together for a little while that we may be changed because of your company. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Vows spoken. There is a favorite part of every wedding ceremony that I officiate, a favorite part. A couple of spots in the ceremony that are my absolute favorite. It's not the... It's not the message, it's not the, the, the music or the unity candle. Sometimes that can get a little, a little dangerous, you know. Uh, it's not even the kiss, it's not, it's not the soloist. It's, for me, it's the moment when we're standing right there. We're standing right down there. And I'm standing with the groom and those doors fly open. And he sees her for the very first time and she sees him and everybody in the room is aware of this thing that's happening, this mystical kind of moment that we're all sharing. And they walk down and somebody's walking with her, usually a father or somebody significant to her to say, I present her. And we're standing right there and I look at her in the face. And I say to her, will you take this man to be your husband, to, to live together in the the covenant of marriage, you love him and comfort him and honor and keep him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others. Will you be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And she will take a deep breath and with clear eyes she says, yes, I will. And I say to him, Will you take this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her and comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others? Will you be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And he will stand up straight and look me in the face and say, I will. Then we walk up these stairs, and later in the service, I say, now turn and face each other, hold each other's hand, look at each other in the eyes, and repeat after me, in the name of God, I take you to be my husband, my wife, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, to love and cherish until we are parted by death, and this is my solemn Vow. 
And it's a moment. And in that moment, there is not one couple whom I have ever married or or conducted a, a wedding for. There's not one couple who on that day could possibly fathom a day when they would be weary enough, angry enough, sad enough, lonely enough, bored enough. To be vulnerable, to violate the things that they vow that day. And yet you and I both know it happens. Now I suppose one way to avoid it uh, from happening or to keep it from happening is we can keep from breaking our promises if we just never make them. I mean, when I did a wedding one time in Tennessee, and I'm not kidding, I'll never forget, and we're doing the premarital counseling, and this is a couple who wanted to, like, write their vows, which is fine. Fine, write them. I said to them, okay, great, this ought to be good. <laughs> write, write a draft, all right? T- write a draft, and I'd like to see it, and we'll, we'll work with it. They brought a draft back the next session, next session and, and it was, ah, it was just Oh, it's bad. It was just, I mean, it was, I love you because you just make me so happy. And, you know, we laugh a lot. And, and I like to take walks with you. And I like to watch movies with you. And we just laugh because we're so happy. And you, and you make me happy. And I'm like, glad that we're getting married because that makes me, I'm just happy, you know. I just, just I wanted to, and I, I said, all right. Uh, good start. <laughs> but I pushed the thing back across, and I said, the problem is, guys, you've made no promises. You've made no promises in this. This is all very good. And what I was saying with my mouth is, this is all very good. What I was saying in my head was, this is a bunch of baloney. You know, this isn't going to cut. I said, so you need to make some promises. And then, no kidding, this is what he said. I know, but we just, we didn't, we don't, we want the, we want the wedding to be kind of a celebration and kind of upbeat. We don't want it to be heavy or too serious. <laughs> I looked him square in the eyes and I said, Brother, nothing could be more serious. It matters that we stand in front of God and make promises. And it matters not just so that at our wedding we say some things and God hears it. It matters because when we make vows, when we make vows with one another, we're we're not just declaring something. What we're saying is, look, this is the, the highest aspiration that I have in this relationship, this thing that's about to happen here. These are the things that I think uh, at the highest level I want to commit to. But I say them in front of God because, God, we are declaring that we need your help to pull this off. We need you to pull this off, and that's why we say it in front of you that you may hold us to the promises that we make to each other. Now, let's not forget that the Ten Commandments, and this commandment in particular, the Seventh Commandment, the one about not committing adultery, it comes to us in the middle of a promise-making ceremony. They're they're establishing a covenant with one another, and God is saying, 
Look, this is what it means to be my people. I'm going to be your God, and this is what you can count on. You can count on these things from me. I will be faithful. You can rely on me. This is what I am going to But I expect some things from you. I expect fidelity not only from you, but between you. Right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments is a command to remain faithful because of something that has to do with our relationship with God. Now see, if, if I had time today to preach, if I had some time today, you know what I would do? I would point out to you all the places in the Old Testament and in the New where one of the dominant metaphors that's used to describe people's relationship with God, one of the dominant metaphors that's used in the Bible to describe um, the relationship between divinity and humanity is marriage. All through the Old Testament, God speaks to Israel, his people, as if they are betrothed, as if they are married to one another. That's the covenant. That's the level of commitment God has, and that's the level of commitment God requires. In fact, there is a whole book in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, and it tells a provocative story. A story, I'm sorry, not Hosea, the Song of Solomon. We're going to get to Hosea in a minute. The Song of Solomon, now that's a steamy read. Come on with it. And listen, the Song of Solomon, in some Jewish traditions, young boys are not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until they reach their bar mitzvah, until they are men. It's that steamy, right? We've got students in the FLC right now trying to... You know what I'm Because it tells a story of two lovers who can't get enough of one another. They, they can't see each other enough. They can't, they can't be with one another enough. They can't talk to one another enough. They are so passionately in love. They just are on fire. There's beautiful language, language in which the lover comes running like a gazelle, leaping across the hills to get to the one whom he loves. And he gets to this fence that's made of lattice, and he sticks his fingers through the, the lattice work, and he peers, peeking, just to get a glimpse of her one last time. And God points to the Song of Solomon, and it says, that's, that's us. That's the level of intensity with which I love you, my beloved. And in the New Testament, Paul carries this metaphor over into the New Testament because when Paul talks about the church, the dominant metaphor that's used there is he says, you know, think about Christ and the relationship Christ has with the church is like, well, the, the church is, well, like the bride of Christ, intimate in every possible way. You are one with Christ, and Christ is one with you. See? So in making vows, vows that are spoken, it matters, these vows that are spoken, they matter because our vows that we speak are extensions of our relationship with God. Vows matter because they are an extension of our faith practice in God. And what do I mean by that? Well, the marriage venue, the venue of marriage, is the place where your faith is put to the test more than any other place. It's in marriage that, that your patience is stretched to the very thinnest. It's, it's in marriage when you are tested and tried, you're pushed, you succeed, you fail, you rise up, you fall down in marriage. So what we say 
in our vow making and in our vow keeping is important because it's an extension of how we're practicing our faith. See, it matters what vows we speak and what vows we keep in marriage because in marriage, here's what's going on. There are moments when you don't want to keep that vow because maybe you don't feel about her or him the same way that you used to feel. It's right then that vow keeping is more important than ever because it's then that you are committed not to the person but to the marriage itself. Because the marriage itself has to endure all the seasons of rising and falling and succeeding and failing because the person, well, your emotions that you feel about the person, well, they will ebb and flow. Because guess what? Here's a newsflash. The person you married is made of flesh and bone. And they, they rise and fall. They succeed and fail. They are strong and they are weak. And they have always been imperfect so your commitment to the vows that you speak before God is an attempt to not simply honor the person but the maker of that person now there is one exception that I want to say out loud and you need to hear me say as your pastor unless you are being abused you hear me so we are called to not just speak vows, but keep vows, even in those days when, when, our, when our motivation wanes and the emotional uh, warm and fuzzies that we used to feel are no longer present about this person. We maintain our covenant because that person, as well as you yourself, will make it through seasons that rise and fall. But if you are being abused, if he is hitting you, if she is hitting you, this is a conversation that deserves its own space and time. Can you, can you hear me say that? Can you, can you make an allowance for that? Because God does not want any remaining in an abusive situation. You need to be safe, and God wants you safe. So see, there are vows that we speak, and they matter they matter most of all when the feelings and emotions go away because the truth of the matter is there are vows spoken, but then there are vows broken. Which leads us to the second movement of this sermon, vows broken. And can I just share with you a few statistics, and not that statistics are king, but it helps put a frame around the, the, the perspective of what we're talking about here. Do you know that one-third of uh, marriages, in one-third or over one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. Now, that doesn't include the marriages that ended because of cheating, but I'm talking about current marriages that are intact, more than 33% admit that one or both have cheated. Next. The breakdown of men and women, 22% of men, 14% of women. Next. 36% of Admit that it was with a co-worker, 17% with a sister-in-law or brother-in-law. Next. People who have cheated once are 350% more likely to cheat again. Next. Affairs are most likely to occur in two, uh, two years into the marriage. Now, this is an interesting one. It reminds me, we've got a member of our team, uh, our staff team, who just celebrated his sixth anniversary. Six. 
uh, which is great. And we were celebrating that a couple of days ago, and it reminded me of when I celebrated my sixth anniversary. Laura and I were in Tennessee, and we hit um, six years, and, and I told the church that. And, and do you remember Bernice and Hoyt? I told you a story about Bernice and Hoyt last week. Uh, she's the one who said, I know the Bible says don't go to bed angry, so we just stay up and fight all night. <laughs> that was Bernice. And she, so when I told the church, uh, when I told the church, she was like 65 when that happened. When I told the church that we had been married six years, uh, they had been married like 60 or something like that. She came up to me after church and said, uh, six years, that's great. She said, we've been married 60 years, 60, 60. And I said, no, Bernice, God, that is fantastic. 60 years? Mm, that's very impressive. And she said, no. She said, six is impressive. She said, because if you can make it through six, you got a shot at 60. Isn't that good? That last statistic is why we need to surround our newly wed couples in the church with love and undergird them and encourage them. Next. Affairs are most likely there in the first two years, uh, but then 35% admit that it happened while on a business trip. Next. Uh, revenge cheating is another topic. Revenge cheating is, you cheated on me, I'm going to cheat on you. 9% of men admit to that, 14% of women, and I can tell you this, I've met with and loved people who have experienced that level of, of uh, infidelity, and I can tell you I've not met one person, not one, who felt better afterwards. <laughs> Next, uh, 10%, we're told, begin online. 10% of affairs begin online, but they don't stay there. 40% of online affairs become real-life affairs. Now, what does all this matter? They're just statistics. They're just statistics. But it helps put a frame around how common this pain is. But if you are somebody here today and you have experienced the injury, the woundedness of having been cheated upon, having gone through adultery, you realize that statistics don't matter at all. You realize that what matters is this, this heart-wrenching, soul-crushing wound that you are carrying around with you. Richard Evans once described this level of pain when you are betrayed at this level, and this is what he says. Broken vows are like broken mirrors. They leave those who held to them bleeding and staring at fractured images of themselves. Can you just leave that up there for just a moment? Broken vows are like broken mirrors. They leave the ones who, who held on to them uh, bleeding and looking at fragmented or fractured images of themselves. It does break something. Maybe that's why it's in the Ten Commandments, because of what it does to dehumanize the other. There is a pain. There is no pain. There is no level of woundedness like a violation of trust. And even though you can decide to forgive overnight, you can decide to forgive, the process of forgiving and the process of earning trust back is a lifetime journey. And I want you to know that if you are bearing that wound today and you're walking around with it and it's still kind of tender to the touch, I want you to know something and I want you to hear me say it clearly. God knows the level of that pain. And I don't just mean that in terms of, well, God knows everything so he sees what you're going through. No, I mean God knows it from personal experience. 
So a moment ago I told you the dominant image in the Old Testament, the dominant metaphor was marriage, right? That God again and again said, You're, I, I am, I'm your beloved and you are my beloved and we are betrothed, this, this marriage image. But nowhere is it more clearly demonstrated in the Old Testament than when God gets cheated on. Cheated on. Time and time and time again, more than 40 references in just the major prophets alone, God looks down and sees that the people have abandoned God's way. They have abandoned God's uh, character. They've gone after other gods and worshipped other idols and other gods. And he says to them time and time again, you have committed adultery against me. And he uses provocative language with them. In places like, I, like Jeremiah, he says... You have spread under every shade tree on every high hill with other gods and have played the harlot. King James even uses language a little bit more PG-13 than that. And God rails against Israel for having cheated on God. And there's a whole book of the Bible. I previewed it a minute ago, right? Hosea, where Hosea is this prophet and he falls in love with this, this prostitute. He marries this prostitute, and, and then she cheats on him, and his heart is crushed. And God points to that and says, yep, that's me. And in language that is, that is every bit the kind of language that you know when you're wounded, God talks about being angry. God talks about being wounded, being heartbroken. In some places, the verbs that are used to describe God's experience are verbs that are only used to describe women giving birth in, in childbirth. Travail, anguish, groaning, hurting. And the reason I tell that to you today is because if you are suffering that wound, the first thing you need to hear is that you are in solidarity with the God who loves you. That God knows right where you are. And why is that important? Because the first step toward healing is, is waking up to the reality that you are understood and that you are seen and that God sees you and knows you and not only that, wants you well, wants you healed from this, right? Now, he's acquainted with your level of pain, but that's not just something pastors say. This is what the cross was all about. Do you know that it matters what we believe about the cross? Because on the cross, we say that there is this eternal, ah, this eternal place in space and time where divine and human relations intersect. Where hanging there on the tree is the evidence that God is acquainted with the worst possible suffering that we can endure. We read about it this way. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. God knows where you are. And your healing begins with waking up to the reality that you are loved with a God who wants to heal you. Now, before any of us get too sanctimonious, before any of us begin to say to ourselves, Whew, glad he's not talking about me today. Can I just tell you that I, that I kind of am talking about all of us because Jesus 
expanded this one, didn't he? Do you remember last week we're talking about murder, right? And last week, the commandment, do not murder, I said, well, we got to look at this through the interpretive lens of Jesus. And Jesus said, look, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, don't be angry. Because if, if you don't deal with your anger, it turns into something more than anger. It, well, it grows and it, it becomes bitterness. And bitterness becomes resentment. And then resentment comes rage. And it becomes evil thoughts. And that becomes evil words. And now you're only two or three decisions away from evil action. So he says, don't be too comforted when you stand way over here angry and say, well, I've kept that commandment. I've never murdered anyone. Because we said last week, we said last week that inside every human heart there is a continuum of violence. A continuum of violence. And we may be comforted, comforted here to say, I'm just angry, but don't be too comfortable because that anger is on the same continuum of violence that murder is. So Jesus does the same thing with this passage, with adultery. So he says... And this is how he puts it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Uh, it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, last week we said that when it comes to murder, there is a continuum of violence. This week I'm telling you there is also another continuum. When it comes to adultery, it may be that you have never crossed the line. And, and maybe you've never gone to the place of com completely physically committing adultery with anyone. But I'm telling you the same continuum is in you as it is in me. The continuum of infidelity. The continuum of infidelity. Which means that it may just be a thought. It may just be a look. It may just be a glance. But at least I'm not way over there committing adultery. At least I'm way down here. But the trouble, the trouble is, just like last week we said, murder doesn't begin with the hands. Murder begins with the heart. Remember that? This week I'm telling you that adultery doesn't begin in the bed. It begins in the head. Way back here. When I've done really nothing wrong. I mean, adultery is way down there, several clicks away from where I am here. But I'm telling you the continuum of infidelity is in any of us. Let me tell you how that could shape up and what it could look like. Uh, through what I'm going to call the... Uh, the coffee room tragedy. You wake up one morning and it's time to go to work. And you're just, things are not well at home. You're not talking. You're not getting along. It's just a dry spell in the marriage. And the spouse, they never say anything to me anymore. They never compliment me anymore. They, they make me do all the work around here. Uh, they never touch me anymore. And so you get up and you go to bed with an empty tank. Remember from our love languages conversation, an empty love tank. Uh, never mind the fact that maybe they're at home getting ready to go to work too, but they're the ones who folded the laundry and packed the lunches and checked online to make sure homework was done. But, but nevertheless, you go to work with an empty tank. And you get there and you're just doing your thing, 
and you go to the coffee room, the break room to get some coffee, and you show up, and somebody comes to you and says, oh, you look nice today. Hmm. That felt kind of nice. So then you suddenly get thirsty again in about an hour to get more coffee. And then these random encounters that seem to fill you with a sense of attention, a sense of, of satisfaction, well, now it's not enough to just let it randomly happen. Do you know what the law of diminishing returns is? The law of diminishing returns, I'm no economist, but I'm going to tell you this much, the law of diminishing returns is this. When the benefit you get is no longer worth the level of energy you're putting in, you move on to some other thing. In relationships, when I show up randomly at the break room and I, and I have a conversation, it's such a good thing to have adult conversation. I never get to have adult conversation. I'm always you know, changing diapers or I'm, I'm always cleaning up the house. I'm always doing the thing, but here I am. I have this conversation. I really enjoy these conversations. We should do this again. We should do this more often. And all of a sudden, you've done nothing wrong, right? Kind of. Then you begin to notice that they take their break at about 10.15. So while you didn't used to take your break at 10.15, you took yours at 11.15. You get thirsty earlier, so now you take your break at 10.15. And now the conversation continues. Hey, how'd that thing go? Uh, that you, were, you had this thing coming up? How'd it go? Oh, tell me about it. Oh, that sounds great. Oh, I really love talking to you. I feel like you really listen to me. Hey, listen, um, can't... Can't make it to work today, but I just, I just thought I'd let you know. I really have enjoyed these conversations, and just wanted you to know I was thinking about you. I hope you have a great day. Emoji, emoji, smiley face. Hey, same thing. Just wanted you to know I was thinking about you today. Emoji, emoji, smiley face, winky face, <laughs> kissy face. With, hey, listen, what are you doing for lunch? I was just going to pick something up real quick. Why don't we ride together? Ride together? That's cool. What about this week? What are you up to? Family's away. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of batching it, just kind of by myself. Well, no need to cook. No need for both. Why don't we just go grab something together? And maybe you've never gone to the place where you cross a line that anybody would recognizably label it as adultery, but my Lord, my Lord, look how far you have come from the day you said, and forsaking all others... I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live technically. See, we all have a continuum of infidelity and we all move up and down that sliding scale. And Jesus says, look, it's not enough to just not commit adultery, but be mindful of what's going on inside your mind because adultery doesn't begin in the bed. It begins in the head. Deal with it here before it ever gets there. Now, I just want to give one quick word before we move into the last section of this sermon today. If you have found yourself somewhere down the spectrum on the continuum of infidelity, and maybe you've not physically done things that you regret, but maybe emotionally, relationally, psychologically, you, you've been unfaithful in the head, or maybe you've even crossed the line and you have done the thing you never thought you would do. What, what do I do now? What do I do now? I've already gone into the garden that was per, per, uh, forbidden, and I've gone near the tree that I was not supposed to go near, and here I have picked this fruit. I knew it was wrong. What do I do? My word to you for now is this. Put down the fruit and step away from the tree. 
but you don't understand. I've already picked it off the tree. Put down the fruit and step away from the tree. Well, you don't understand because it sounds all great in a sermon. It sounds nice and easy, but you don't understand. I've already eaten half the thing. I've eaten the fruit. Even if your breath still smells like the fruit that was forbidden, I'm telling you, spit it out. Put down the fruit and walk away from the tree. And by the grace of God, there can be resurrection once more. Which moves us to the third part of this conversation. Not only are there vows spoken that matter before God, and not only is the reality that there are vows that are broken, I am here to tell you that despite the brokenness, you can live again. Marital resurrection. I was moved recently by a song that I heard in a worship service. The text of it goes, it's a Leonard Cohen song. It's called Anthem. Listen to these words. What do you do when it's gone way too far? What do you do when it's broken and the pain of its brokenness? I can't, I can't get rid The birds they sang at the break of day, start again, I heard them say. Don't dwell on what has passed away or, or, or what is yet to be. Yeah, the wars, they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be caught again, bought and sold and bought again. The dove is never free. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. There is a crack in everything. And what if today the greatest truth that I could speak to you, the greatest hope that I could give to you, what if it's this, that in the fragmented remains of whatever it is that has fallen down around you, what if it's in the crack, the fracture, the brokenness? What if it's in the middle of the brokenness that your greatest hope is to be found? Don't forget, it is, it is Christ who said to Paul, my strength is made perfect, not in your perfection, but in your weakness. When you're wounded, when you're hurt, and you, you can't heal yourself, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. What if it's in the brokenness that your greatest hope remains? See, in the scripture, in the theology, we call that the Paschal mystery. The Paschal mystery is simply the Easter mystery, which means it's the, the dying and the rising of life. And we believe in the Christian church that anything that dies with Christ rises again. That if you bury it with Christ, it can be raised to new life. And I'm telling you, adultery can feel like death. The death of a hope, the death of a dream, the death of some goals, the death of intimacy the way it used to be. But anything that you bury with Christ by faith can be raised up to walk in newness of life. There's an Old Testament story that's just powerful. This, this story going back to God being cheated upon. So God is cheated upon and he allows the invading armies to come and ransack the place and then many years later, the remains of that battle from war, well, they're still there, and there are these bones. The bones are everywhere from, from this battle. And he tells the prophet Ezekiel, go to the valley of dry bones. I want you to stand there. And, and this prophet stands there like knee-deep 
and bones and death, not just bones, but dry bones. They've got nothing in them anymore. Kind of like the marriage can feel. Stand there knee deep in the bones. And God says to the prophet, hey, can these, can these bones live again? And the prophet looks around, picks up a hip bone and a, a jaw bone and picks up a, an arm bone and says, Lord, only you know. And it may be that that's where your relationship is today. The thing happened. It either happened to you or you were the one who did the thing. And you're standing there among the bones, the remains of what was left. And God says, do you think it can live again? And you, maybe you're in the place where you're like, I, I don't know. Only you know. It's in that moment that it matters whether we really believe in resurrection or not. So the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones, preach to them, and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the bones, these bones, I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin, and I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. The beauty of the story is that you can't raise your marriage back up from death. It must be raised by the God who wants it to live again. Did you notice the language? I will put the bones together. I will give you breath again when you have lost your breath. So what, so what do we do? Because, Sean, you're doing a great job describing things here, you know, but here I am, I'm drowning, and you're describing the water. What do I do? I have one tip to equip today. Ready? Hold on with both hands and release it every single day. Hold on with both hands and Release it every single day. What do you mean? Is it hold on with both hands to this thing or release it? Yes. Hold on to what you can hold on to and release what you can't. Hold on. If you are the victim and you have been cheated on, walked out on, rejected, despised, right? You hold on to your faith. Hold on to the vows if you can't. Hold on to them, but release into the Lord's hands, your inability to forgive. Lord, I want to forgive, but I cannot do this right now. Hold on to the Lord's company with you, but release your inability until it becomes a little easier. See, I can stand up here and say, well, you should forgive. You should just, just forgive. But you and I both know if you've ever had to really forgive anybody, it's an everyday sea. It's an everyday waking up to decide, I'm going to hold on with both hands today and deliberately, morning, noon, and night, I will release into God's hands what I can't do on my own. And if you're someone who has actually walked over the line and you've done the damage and you're like, I don't know what to do to back away from this, then I'm saying to you, hold on with both hands to your faith, hold on to, with both hands to your vows, and release before God. Your guilt, your sin, your temptation, 
Lord, I, I want to be set free from this, but I don't know what to do. In fact, I know I can apologize and ask your forgiveness, but I don't know where to even begin asking for their forgiveness. I'm holding on to your desire to make us free, but I'm letting go and letting you show me what to do next with her, with him. Hold on with both hands and release it every day. This is not a one-day fix. Hold on with both hands and release into his good, capable hands every day your pain, your sin, your temptation, and your trust. Let's pray. Just a moment to acknowledge to you that, gosh, we have all sinned against you we have all been unfaithful to you, and that is a fact. But you desire healing in our innermost being. And you desire reconciliation between us and, and, and you and between even ourselves. Our prayer today is that if someone is here and they are hurting and they are struggling and they are lost and they do not know which direction to turn, that they would turn to you, confess their sins, Hold on to the hope that you have not let them go and release trust that you can make them whole once again, Lord. Begin the healing today in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord.